0: Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachob, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host, Dr. Robin Berzin, is the founder and CEO of Parsley Health, and she's also a summa cum laude graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. She completed medical school at Columbia University's College of Physicians and Surgeons and trained in internal medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital here in New York City. She is a longtime friend of Colleen and I, and she's also part of our health coaching program here at MBG. And today, she's back on the show to chat about her new must-read book titled State Change, End Anxiety, Beat Burnout, and Ignite a New Baseline of Energy and Flow. Robin, welcome.
1: Hi, so good to see you.
0: So good to have you back on the show. I loved your book, State Change. I'm like, with a subtitle like, End Anxiety, Beat Burnout, and Ignite a New Baseline of Energy and Flow. What's Not to Love? So, congratulations.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: And so, what I'm curious is, you're a real doctor. You're out there and you're seeing patients in your office physically and virtually, and you've got a staff of doctors at Parsley. And, you know, we're recording this in mid-December and this is going to air in in mid-January. And who knows how much the world will change between now and then, hopefully not too much. But I am curious, like, what are you seeing more of in your practice right now in our post-COVID, peak COVID, I don't know what to call it, world? What what do you see?
1: Well, I think that COVID unearthed a silent epidemic of mental health issues, right? Or, and brought them on for others. And it's a subtitle about ending anxiety and beating burnout and finding a new baseline of energy and flow. I really wanted in this time and was inspired, I wrote the proposal at the very beginning of COVID to write something that could be applicable to a lot of people because we're all living through this, right? We're all living through the burnout of the news cycle and of lockdowns and of just the constant anxiety of dealing with something that is completely outside of our control. And whether you have a history of something very serious, like, you know, bipolar or trauma, or whether you're not happily dealing with one of those types of conditions, but you're just living in modern life, what we saw in our practice was that F.41, the ICD-10 code for anxiety, was the most diagnosed and most cited ICD-10 code in our patient base of tens of thousands of people, even when they were coming to us for other things like digestive issues or joint pain or migraines or infertility or whatever they came to us for. And so I felt really compelled to write something that could help anyone achieve what I call a state change, which is a shift to greater calm, to greater focus, to greater energy, to greater clarity through the body. Because there's a lot out there that we cannot control, whether it's our life history or what's happening in the world today. But there are so many things that we can do that can positively shift our mental health on the physical plane. And so I wanted to give people a key.
0: I love that you've identified these four core, excuse me, five core actions in the book, which determine energy and flow. So you've got nutrition, exercise, sleep, technology, and then last, alcohol and drugs. So can you briefly summarize how you think about each of those and maybe start with nutrition?
1: Yeah. So core actions, first of all, the reason I call them that in the book is that I think that we ourselves a disservice when we think about what we eat every day, how we move every day, how we interact with technology every day, and think of these things as habits or lifestyle, right? These things are not habits. Habits is like biting your nails. (laughs) A lifestyle is like which brand of shoe you wear, right? But these things are things that we do all day, every day that are core to who we are and are defining actions for how we feel. And so I want us to recognize them as such. And when it comes to nutrition, and I'll cover the other ones in a second, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people don't realize, because how could they possibly know this? Because we don't teach anyone this, that the foods that you're they're eating or that you're eating on a daily basis are making you feel awful. They're causing your brain fog, your anxiety, or depression. And this can be anything from the fact that, you know, our diet is 70% ultra processed and highly refined and we're eating hundred pounds of sugar a year, right? And sugar and high blood sugar and metabolic disarray are actually linked to brain inflammation, depression, and anxiety. Or it could be something like a food allergy that you don't know you have. One of the most common manifestations actually of a gluten sensitivity or gluten intolerance is brain fog or irritability. And so what, just to use nutrition as an example, there's a lot of people in our medical community often don't connect the dots between the physical and the mental. What is happening in the body that's driving your mental health or depleting your mental health? And the foods we eat every day can cause you to feel clear, calm, focused, or they can cause you to feel the opposite of those things. And so I walk through in the book how to essentially analyze your diet and understand if you're just eating foods every day that may not be serving you, let's not call them bad or good. Let's just call them not serving you when it comes to establishing a positive outlook, mental and emotional well-being.
0: Holding on nutrition for a moment, how would you describe your, your, nut- your nutrition philosophy a- and what are some of those foods that, you know, again, I know it's hard to generalize, but you know, are, can contribute to us being a little bit more calm, less anxious.
1: So the first things are what you cut out, refined sugar, refined carbs and omega-6 oils, which are your, like your vegetable oils, right? Because The refined carbs, even if it's breads, pastas, crackers that don't taste sweet, are effectively sugar in the body. Sweets, sodas, candies, just anything that tastes sweet, all those sugary cereals. Even the health bars and the health drinks and the juices. My old article on My Body Grade from like 17 million years ago, the case against juicing got me in trouble from (laughs) a bunch of people were mad. But, you know, these things are sugar bombs and what's happening in the body when you eat a high sugar diet, and a lot of people, I think they're eating healthy, but are eating more sugar and carbs than they realize by a landslide. You increase your insulin, which increases, can drive hormonal disarray. High blood sugar can lead to inflammation in the body. Too much sugar changes the kinds of bacteria that live in the gut that regulate our emotions through neurotransmitters that are actually gut regulated more than brain regulated. So we're eating a lot of stuff that's not, that's getting in our way. And then we also forget that most of our brains are made of fat. And when you're eating mainly vegetable oils, these are your corn oils and your rapeseed, grapeseed oils, and the kinds of oils that are in most takeout and restaurant food, you're actually making it really hard for your brain to build healthy cells, to build healthy neurons. And so I'll get to it to eat in a second, but removing these things from your diet largely I just can't tell you over and over again how I see people feel transformed. And I've had patients for whom it wasn't about a food allergy necessarily or food sensitivity, but they really cut out the carbs. They really focused on a plant-based paleo, what I call plant-based paleo eating philosophy, which is low, not zero carb, but low carb. You still have your squashes and your, um, Sweet potatoes and even your whole gluten-free grades, your like quinoas and your rices, in, in moderation. I'm not saying it needs to be keto or a zero carb diet. You could have those things plus lots of plants, plus lean, high quality protein. And when you really cut out the processed foods and cook, you know, two-thirds of your meals, say two out of three meals a day, are from a restaurant or prepackaged. People feel magically better in just a couple of weeks. And so I kind of want that for everyone who's listening to this, if you haven't tried it. And we walk you through in the book, a 30-day plan to follow what to eliminate and what to eat to establish that nutrition-based state.
0: So essentially eat food, not too much, mostly plants.
1: Yeah. I mean, Michael Pollan really said it best. Like I'm in a doc as a doctor in a medical practice that's treating patients who either are health optimizing or have one of the many chronic conditions that people come to us with. That nutritional adage of eat real food, mostly plants, not too much, like it works, right? And yet what hasn't happened in our medical community is that we haven't said this is therapy. This is therapeutic. This is treatment for disease. This is not just sort of a popularized, you know, proverb (laughs) that we all can nod our heads and smile, this will actually help cure. And especially when it comes to brain fog. I had a patient whose brain fog and anxiety were actually linked to SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which she had developed through a combination of overuse of antibiotics and eating a high sugar diet. And so we had to go all the way back to what she had taken in her foods and in her case some medications over time that had disrupted her gut bacteria in such a way that she was experiencing brain fog to the point that she couldn't get through her day. And by not only treating the SIBO, but also adjusting her diet. So that it didn't come back on a mental and emotional level. She felt completely transformed and that's the metamorphosis we're talking
0: about. And so nutrition, everything you said makes complete sense. Moving on to exercise. How, how do you think about exercise and, and what does science say about what is really effective?
1: Well, I think one of the most interesting things in the science of mental health is that universally exercise is proven to be more effective than antidepressants or act as effective as antidepressants. And the medical literature recommends that doctors prescribe exercise for everyone experiencing a mental health issue. Exercise is shown to improve symptoms of depression and anxiety in 95% um, in a matter of weeks and antidepressant medications only work for studies of Range from 40 to 60%. So average out 50% in that same time frame. And so as physicians, as a psychiatric community, we should be prescribing exercises and in medical intervention. The research is there to 100% of people and medications may also be beneficial and helpful. So, wow, what a dumb whammy. How could you magically help your patient feel better with a combination of a medication and uh, a specific exercise protocol. But doctors are not trained to do that. And that mystifies me because the research is clear and it's well established it's been there for a long time.
0: Yeah, no, no need to comment, but I'll just add basically saying to people during the pandemic that you need to stay inside and it is probably the worst advice ever given the state of the mental health epidemic and what was going yeah. on. Society. And like, also
1: getting outside was safe. And we didn't know that at the beginning, right? We didn't, but after a certain point we did. And so part of it to your point and what has happened for kids, especially, I mean, the mental health impact on this for kids, especially disadvantaged kids who, you know, weren't able to pot up or didn't have some of the re- ongoing resources is heartbreaking. Right. And moving. One of the things that was really interesting in researching the book was getting into the science of how we are designed as human beings to move emotions through movement. The body is designed to do that. And when you don't move, and you do what we all do, which is sit 11 hours a day on average, you store your emotions. And that actually leads to the development of disease in the body. And there's really interesting science on this. And there's really clear science that the body is equipped and designed to move emotions through movement. And so we seem to have forgotten this tool that's at our fingertips is largely free and also will help you address a bunch of other health issues today and down the road. So it's like, win, 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 win. Yet it's not taken as seriously as taking a medication, even though it should to be more effective. And that to me is mind boggling.
0: I, I, I love that you mentioned that it, it was in my notes. Uh, I thought it was fascinating that you focused on this in the book. It reminded me of an old Sean Korn yoga class back in like 2010, where <laughs> she said something, you know, the, the mind can forget, but the body doesn't, something along those lines. That, and it always stuck with me. And, and you brought it up in your book. So can you talk? I think it's such a fascinating concept. And I think in our world, you know, our listeners are a smart group. They're passionate. You know, we all like data and numbers. And it's like, all right, you know, I'm going to eat my vegetables. I'm going to, you know, do my high intensity interval training and yoga meditate. But like, we can't, sometimes we kind of forget, at least I do about the spiritual and the emotional exercise, if you will, and the implications of, you know, trauma, whether it's a big T or a little T and the collective trauma we're experiencing. So can you talk a little bit about what some of the science says about how emotions really live in our body? Cause for some people it, it feels very, you know, new agey, you know, it's something you would hear in a yoga class with Sean Corn, but there's science there.
1: Yeah. Well, it's very concrete. Right. And, and so we can talk about that. So when you have a thought, a thought, like I'm scared or I'm upset or I'm angry. And maybe that thought is so fleeting and quick because it's a, it's more of a reaction than a thought that you might not even register the thought as words, right? But the brain has perceived a threat or something emotionally challenging or negative. In that moment, the body responds to that thought with a neurohormonal cascade. There are neurotransmitters released. There are stress hormones released like cortisol. The heart rate quickens. The blood pressure goes up. And in that hormonal cascade, in that neurohormonal neuro cascade is how we call it in medicine, these chemicals, this chemical wave goes through the body, it can take up to 48 hours for that chemical wave's effects to dissipate. And your cells, every single cell of your, in your body has receptors for these chemicals. And so a message is sent throughout your entire body. And as this happens over and over again, or happens in a big way for you or a meaningful way, little T, big T, T in this case, everyone stands for trauma or is just part of your day-to-day stress. If you do not take the time to process those emotions and by process, I mean, feel them, experience them all the way through, move them by exercising, whether it's going for a walk or going for a run or a yoga class or sweating or hit, doesn't really matter how you just move. Those neurohormonal cascades or waves actually can create structural changes in the body. And those structural changes can create weaknesses and places of disease. This impacts the immune system. This impacts blood sugar. This can drive up inflammation. This can open up the pores that line our gut, creating a phenomenon that I know you've had lots of people talk about on the show called leaky gut, which is where things in our gut get through and our immune system starts to react to them. So the connections between our emotions and our thoughts and our emotional reaction to them is this invisible, but very real neurochemical or neuronal cascade that goes through the body and that when it happens regularly or it happens in a forceful enough way, creates physical structural changes that stay with us. And so that's the how it works. And I know it's hard for, for folks maybe to visualize all of this happening in the body, but one of the things I wrote about in a different chapter, where then I addressed this, but in the new frontiers chapter, but I work, wrote about acupuncture a little bit and a number of other healing modalities as part of the tools in our toolkit for addressing our mental health through the physical, right? And one of the things I thought was so interesting is that in traditional Chinese medicine, which is a well-established 5,000 year old or more field of medicine that in acupuncture comes from, there's an understanding of the energetic pathways through the body, as being like an organ system. So just like your bones or your muscles or your heart or your lungs, the energy pathways, they call them the meridians that all connect to each other and innervate everything. But it's not your nerves. It's energetic pathways that kind of run through the fascia. They have whole maps of them. If you've ever seen an acupuncture chart, the pressure points that you um, use or the points that you use with acupuncture needles or acupressure or map two points in the system. It is a structural, real organ. And it's one art. System of medicine doesn't recognize, but theirs does. And they've learned how to manipulate that organ system. And so I think it's really important that as a medical community that is facing an onslaught of mental health need from our population, that we educate ourselves and get clear on the tools that we could be adding to our tool baskets that are proven and well-researched to help people. And exercise is one of them. Very well established acupuncture is
0: another. Something else you touch on, you know, you hear people talk about sleep fairly often. Now I think sleep is out there and also technology and kind of put them together. And I think this is so interesting. You touch on technology and lighting and how it's messing with our sleep specifically SCN. And, mm-hmm. you know, how should we be thinking about that relationship between technology, light exposure and sleep? Because you know, look, th- there's a mental health epidemic and we, th- there's a sleep epidemic as well. And, and they contribute to each other yeah. and we're doing, you know, I think a lot of people are still doing a lot of things wrong unknowingly when it comes to sleep and their relationship with technology and lighting. So so how do you think about the relationship?
1: They are very much linked. And I, I was curious to learn, even in researching the book, how chronic sleep deprivation, even chronic poor sleep quality, you may be getting a good number of hours, but those hours might be crappy hours, not getting through enough full sleep cycles to basically heal and restore the brain. The brain washes itself out every night, cleans up the metabolic damage of the day and just the metabolic function of the day uh, and kind of gets ready for a new one. So there's lots of things happening when you're asleep and you need to get through a few sleep cycles to feel totally rested for that process of cleaning to happen. And so for a lot of people that's not happening because of their either uh, alcohol consumption, their relationship with technology, their anxiety level, their use of some medications like ambient that don't actually allow you to go into uh, real sleep, so it's sort of like a false sleep. People don't realize, and that chronic sleep deprivation or chronic poor sleep quality can lead can mask as depression. And so I always say to my patients, you know, if you're not sleeping, there's not much we can do. And when it comes to technology. A lot of people take for granted the ways that technology is disrupting their mental and emotional well-being, including their sleep. And we talked a lot in the past couple of years, I think, about blue light and blue light is being emitted from your devices. And it also coming from like LED lights, as well as that low flicker rate of some of the LEDs, which are good because they last a long time, but bad because they irritate our nervous systems. And so this type of light is really disruptive to our sleep. And we got that message and we're sort of filtering it and replacing our light bulbs. I I did. I have like sort of a full UV, UV spectrum that is more like the sun spectrum light bulb in my bedroom, for instance, instead of an LED. There may be places where it's okay to have LEDs, but bedroom's not one of them. And that light disrupts the SCN, which is a part of the brain that makes melatonin and melatonin is needed for you to go to sleep. What we haven't talked about so much, which is really important, is the ways in which technology and the information we're getting from it is stimulating us and keeping us from reaching a deeper sleep. And so whether it's your social media or your news feeds, a lot of people are scrolling right up until bedtime. And it is the nature of the information or looking at email, whatever the case may be, that's actually keeping your brain on go. And then they just try to drop into bed and fall asleep and it's not happening. And I think sometimes we don't take this seriously enough and I think of, like one of my patients who I wrote about in the book, a woman in her twenties, she'd had a long history of anxiety. And both her psychiatrist and I had worked with her on this. And she is one of those people who unfortunately, you know, the 40 to 50% who just don't respond to medication. So we'd tried all the anxiety drugs and the Zolofs and everything, and she just didn't help her. And so we were kind of stuck. And she was having a flare of her anxiety. She really wasn't sleeping to the point that it was kind of she was falling apart. She was like young mom. And I was like, all right, let's go back to basics. Like, what are you eating? How are you moving? She was exercising a ton. It wasn't like doing enough. And I was like, how much time are you spending on your phone and on social media, et cetera? And she was spending like six hours a day looking at this stuff, including like two of them, you know, between the news and, you know, email and work and social, like up until bed. And so I was like, why don't we do a one week digital detox? Kind of as a Hail Mary, to be honest with you. And her anxiety improved by like 80%. She started sleeping again. Wow. And so I think we take for granted the ways in which the information and the stimul is stimulating us, stimulating our brains, not allowing us to reach a deep sleep. And we need to use technology for everything we do. It's not going anywhere. You and I are having this chat right now remotely recording. It's amazing. But it can't be something that takes us over. We have to manage it.
0: And so you mentioned Alcohol, which you also talk about, and I think alcohol is always a tricky one because, yeah, you know, you've got people who don't drink, they're sober, and then people who drink way, way too much, and then you've got the the messy middle, which I, yes. so which is the majority, yes, of us, and the majority of us are in the middle, and we're we're trying to figure out like, what's healthy? Is it one drink? Is it three drinks? Is it tequila? Is it beer? Is it red wine? Is it none of the above? What is it? So how do you think about, you know, alcohol and what does healthy consumption look like in terms of frequency, in terms of type of alcohol, in terms of setting? Because I also think setting is important as well.
1: So as you pointed out, alcoholism or alcohol addiction, we're gonna acknowledge and put aside for the sake of what I'm about to say, because there are people for whom zero is the only answer. Alcohol is a highly addictive drug and it's a neurotoxin and it increases your risk of a variety of cancers. So excessive use of alcohol or alcohol abuse without addiction is also a problem. It's also unrealistic to tell everyone just never drink again because it's part of our culture, it's part of our society. And so the rule of thumb I like to say is first of all, ask yourself, are you having alcohol to feel better? or Are you having alcohol to feel even better? Because if alcohol is your method for dealing with your life or you're using it to feel better rather than even better, that might indicate to you that you're using it in a problematic way. So there's always a gut check. I invite people to have with them from there. If you are drinking, I recommend drinking more than three nights a week, one to two drinks. And we at Parsley recommend to all our patients either mezcal, vodka, clear alcohols that don't have some of the toxins in them and are zero sugar or like fully naturally fermented wine. So the natural wine communities, a lot of them are types of wine have, you know, some nice antioxidants in them, small quantities, but they're there. And if you drink that type of wine, they're typically lower in alcohol and also fully fermented. So they don't have any residual sugars. So you're going to drink, choose those is what I would recommend. And then the three nights a week thing is really important because that way on the balance, four are no alcohol, three on. And I always just recommend more off than on because then your body has time to recover and you're at least getting the majority of your nights of sleep are healthy and higher quality, because the other thing that a lot of people don't realize, and they're really kind of self-sabotaging without meaning to, uh, I wind down at the end of the day, I have a drink, that's how I fall asleep. But that alcohol is making it impossible for your body to reach the lower resting heart rate um, and lower body temperature that you need to achieve at night for deep sleep. And so as a result of that, you may be sleeping or you may be passing out, but your sleep quality is really much lower when you've had a couple of drinks. Uh, and so I'll also recommend, you know, drink earlier in the night, like 10 PM is not the time to have that glass of wine at 6 PM so that you have time to metabolize it. And also again, having four nights off and three nights on so that that off is dominant to the on so that your body has time to recover, to detox, to get that deeper sleep. And I think a lot of people don't have that framework and so have trouble setting boundaries around alcohol. And then it kind of like seeps in because it's so accepted in our culture. It's mind boggling to me how accepted alcohol is, despite it's proven dangers versus like other things. It's just like.
0: Yeah. It's interesting as someone who tracks everything as it were my whoop or on Fitbit, what I found is I could have two drinks earlier in the day and two drinks earlier in the day will have less impact than one drink later in the evening.
1: Yeah, because your body hasn't had time to metabolize that alcohol fully, right? And it's so important that I think people set a framework around alcohol, even if they have no history of addiction, no current addiction, they're not abusing alcohol to feel better. They're just using it socially to feel even better. And for some people that can be okay, but I still recommend having a framework around it. Right. And, you know, for a lot of people, I think there's a lack of realization of how their anxiety and depression are really worsened deeply by just low grade alcohol use. And so if you're not sure about that and you're listening to this, if you're on the fence, you're like, I don't know, it's really a problem. We don't drink that much. Take two weeks off. 14 days, no alcohol. Note how you feel. And we have a symptom score in the book that you can take your symptoms at the beginning um, and get a health score and you can do it two weeks later, do it before and after. It can be really instructive. And if you're an online person like me, despite my needing to put technology in a box, you go to parsleyhealth.com slash insights, and you can get your own health score through a, a medically validated um, symptom tracker that we've created in, in-house. And you can use that again and again, as often as you'd like, although it's designed to be done roughly two weeks apart every time to assess your whole body, gut health, mental health, hormone health. And when you do that, you can also, if you want to do an experiment like this, whether it's changing your nutrition for a couple of weeks, or changing your relationship with alcohol for a couple of weeks, it's great to do at the beginning and the end, because it gives you this objective way of seeing what the impact of that change was on you.
0: So I'm going to come back to Mezcal since, you know, <laughs> I think the last time Colleen and I caught up with you and David and our little kiddos, we, we had a uh, Mexican at Tacombe in, in Williamsburg. We, we love Mexican. We, we actually have a history of going to Mexican, Mexican restaurants as, <laughs> as a group. So coming back to Mezcal and our affinity for Mexican food, what can you, is it just Mezcal on the rocks? What what can you mix with that for those who, you know, want to have a, a, a nice Mezcal drink? And, and I'm being specific, no tequila, Mezcal, or tequila number two? I want to get some clarity around this.
1: White or clear tequila, but not the aged tequila that's darker in color. But Mezcal is always that way or, or for the most part. And then tequila is often that way, but there's a couple versions of tequila. Um, and then you can have a margarita, right? But just get them to leave the agave out. Like a lot of these bars and places like dump yeah. sugar syrup into these things. And it's terrible. So my drink, my like go-to drink if I'm out is mezcal margarita on the rocks with salt skinny. <laughs> Which is a really embarrassing thing to say because I'll be like, no agave, no sugar. And they're all, and the bartender or the waiter always looks at me and goes skinny. And I like sheepishly look down and I'm like, Yeah. <laughs> Fine. So now I just own it. I'm just going to say that. And it's their, it's the bartender's word for not adding a it
0: So, so next time we hang out as a group, we'll have to, we'll have to go to Grand Electrica here in Dumbo with you because they have a margarita with cucumber juice. Ooh. Yes. Yes. So <laughs> I, I like to think it's just the cucumber, the, you know, the power, the antioxidant powder, power of the cucumbers just, you know, do magic and it's just like neutral. Maybe, you know, I'm sure I'm,
1: Amazing. I'll, I'll imagine that with you when we go, but (laughs) I'll, I'll
0: see you there. So, so, you know, we've covered the five pillars, you know, nutrition, exercise, sleep technology, and alcohol. And and I'm curious, look, so many people come to see you and parsley, you know, some of them have been shunned by Western medicine and then, and some of them are already like really healthy people. Like I, I would also say like some of the healthiest people I know see you. And so I'm curious as it relates to those five pillars, what are healthy people doing wrong that, you know, cuz we all so much has changed. There are so many conflicting opinions now in terms of what's good or bad for us. There are there's so much noise on Instagram and social media with, you know, nutrition influencers, whether they have letters after their name or not. And. I'm just curious. There are a lot of healthy people out there who are doing things wrong that they're unaware of. So in your professional opinion, what are some of the things you're seeing where like, you're seeing this group of healthy people and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe you're doing that. Who told you to do that? Yeah.
1: Well, first of all, I mean, a lot of people aren't as healthy as they think. So I'd ask your healthy person, you know, when we had to do our intake here at Parsley, whether it's me or any of our providers, right? We start with this really in-depth intake. It's a program. So you could be coming and saying, I feel pretty good. I want to optimize. Or you could be coming and saying, I've been dealing with our chronic condition. No one's figure it out. Or you could come and say, I have an autoimmune condition. I have headaches. I have so- something. I'm trying to get pregnant. Like what I would define is not someone who thinks of themselves as chronically ill, but they have a health issue that they want to address. And so we see across the board, right? And for a lot of people, they don't actually know if they're healthy or not because 70% of younger people don't have a primary care doctor. They're not doing testing. And so when we do that symptom score that I just talked to you about, a lot of people see parts of their body lighting up as having issues that they've been kind of in denial about. And then when we do testing to back that up and I walk you through in the book, what kinds of tests I think are essential to get at least a couple of times a year. And then some of the more advanced testing, that's more you know personalized. But you would be shocked at what people find. And so I think a lot of people will say, yeah, I'm pretty healthy. And oftentimes they're ignoring symptoms that they're feeling. I'm pretty healthy, but I'm bloated all the time. I'm pretty healthy, but I have migraine headaches. I'm pretty healthy, but I can't sleep. I'm pretty healthy, but I'm gaining weight. I don't know why. I'm pretty healthy, but my periods are all over the place. And my doctor told me I need IVF to get pregnant. I hear that over and over and over again. I'm pretty healthy and, or I'm pretty healthy, but. So I think when, for the healthy people, it starts with that deep assessment that everyone needs, which is to say, what's actually objectively look at how healthy you actually are. And maybe there's some things that we can work on. And then to answer your question for the the people, most people come to us with something going on, but there are people who come who are are focused on optimization from day one. Maybe they have a family history of Alzheimer's or heart disease, and they wanna get ahead of that. They've had kids and they just want to be around for a long time and want to get, get on top of their health. And the things they're doing wrong, I see often, and goes back to some of these core actions, you're like, oh, yeah, sleep, technology, nutrition, alcohol, like exercise. These things sound basic. Of course, I'm doing all those things. But when you ask that healthy person how they're approaching those things, a lot of people are sitting 12 hours a day. A lot of people aren't moving regularly, so they're just not actually moving even though they think of themselves as healthy. They're eating way too much sugar, especially in the form of like health bars and health foods and a lot of processed stuff that's out there that's been marketed as healthy. I love going to like, I don't care whether it's Whole Foods or Fresh Town or wherever, and walking down like the, you know, Whole Foods is sort of everywhere. Fresh Town, where we go upstate, it's like there's an aisle for like the granola people like me were like shunned to it in an aisle in the corner. And when I look at the labels and I look at the boxes and everything has a green leaf on it. And so as magically, you know, in the health food aisle, quote unquote, a lot of it is full of refined sugars, is full of preservatives. And so a lot of people are eating a lot more processed and packaged stuff than they actually would admit to or realize. And so those things can really catch up with you in ways that Maybe happening under the surface is where the testing comes in, but where you haven't felt it yet. And so you think you're healthy, but underneath your body is actually managing a lot.
0: Think about it in a different way. So we've known each other for over a decade. You know, you're one of the OG wellness people in New York City. You know, we go way back. We've seen a lot come and go. We've seen trends. We've seen fads. We've seen a lot.
1: I'm not 90 years old. For those of you who are listening, no, no, you're not. (laughs) But
0: like, you know, I we've looked the wellness scene specifically in New York has changed quite a bit in the last decade. And so, with that said, I'm curious from your perspective, what are you seeing? And this isn't specific to New York, but just like more generally in in the states or globally, what what are you seeing that you think there are a lot of things trendy right now in our space? What do you think? is a fad where you're just looking at it and you're like, eh, not really a, a lot of science there. I, I don't really see this working out well. Like there's, what do you think?
1: Oh gosh. I'm So Jason just likes me to get in trouble people, by the way, I'm just going to piss someone off because I went after Juicing years ago, as I said earlier. So who am I going to go after now? But I, I think there's a couple of fads happening right now. I think a really expensive waters are a fad and not worth it. Like grab a glass bottle, put some filtered water in and sprinkle some sea salt and you're good. Off you go. No more plastic in the world, please. (laughs) You know, that's a big one for me. I think that there's a lot of like fairy dusting of supplements. So this has been forever, but as the functional food trends have come up, there's a smattering of a medicinal mushroom like reishi or lion's mane. There's a smattering of an adaptogenic herb like ashwagandha or rhodiola. There's a dusting of, you know, a curcumin or something that's anti-inflammatory in a food. And so all of a sudden it's a functional medicinal food. And there's so little of that ingredient in that food that it's absolutely going to do nothing for you, especially if it's counteracted by the sugar or other crap that's in there. So those are a couple of the big ones. So dusting of supplements does not work. And I think that, you know. In the healthcare world, which is like a little bit aside from the wellness world, but what I'm seeing a lot right now is using the phrase food as medicine in like healthcare companies that are advertising themselves as primary care. These are sometimes really big organizations. And the fad part of it is that they don't understand nutrition. They're not actually prescribing food as medicine. They're just giving lip service to this notion of eat healthy, which as I just pointed out, is easy to mess up when you walk down the aisle with everything with a green leaf on it. That's not actually healthy for you, or you don't know that you have food allergies. And so it's starting to become a fad in healthcare to use that as a in a band-aid way and not in a true way. And that's something I'm gonna be really loud about in the future because I'm in my healthcare world, I'm starting to see that quite a bit.
0: So what was the most surprising study you came across while researching the book?
1: You know, some of the research that fascinated me the most in reading this, one was the exercise research that I knew but kind of didn't know. And when I looked into how proven exercise is for mental health, it was gratifying and enlightening, but also sort of mind-blowing just how much is there. I also had a really good time also in my new Frontiers chapter. I delved into the research on psychedelics a bit. And that's a really interesting area, area that's up and coming for mental health. That's really important and from NYU to Johns Hopkins to, you know, how to change your mind and other books that have really gone through the depth of research here. I think the psychedelic medicine is really promising and really interesting and I'm excited to see it get its evidence base under its footing in a proper way, really understand the risks, but we're talking about non-addictive medicines that are if used in a supervised setting and if used as a therapeutic setting, you know, showing that they can massively help people with PTSD and other very serious mental health conditions. So, you know, that's not my field. I'm not a psychiatrist. So it was really interesting to delve into the research on that. And I think that's a big trend that you're seeing right now. You're going to be hearing tons more about in the next few years, the amount of investment and backing of companies bringing these types of products to market, whether they're what I would call fluffy supplements or foods that don't do anything or whether they're truly, you know, doctor-supervised healthcare companies. I think that's huge. And I think the research is there and coming. And so I think it's really important that we keep a critical eye on it and watch it. So I wrote about that.
0: Yeah, and it is interesting. And there's a big difference between, you know, hailing a cab at the in Tulum and asking for a local shaman or hanging out in your friend's <laughs> basement somewhere and, and tripping versus doing it in a medically supervised setting when you've tried lots of other yeah. modalities or pharmaceutical interventions that haven't helped it, it there's a big difference
1: this is not about recreational use right and this is not about you know the medicine for the medicine's sake and I think that's one thing that's getting lost like whenever I hear somebody say oh it was like 10 years of therapy in one night I'm just like come on, you know, and I, and if there are people I know, right. I look at them and I'm like, have your relationships changed? Has your life really changed? Right. But that said when used in a supervised setting and used in conjunction with integration therapy uh, and when used in partnership with a mental health professional, who knows what they're doing. And as part of an overall therapeutic protocol, not, you know, there's no magic. There's no magic bullet. Right. right. And so when you use as part of that, it can be very effective. And I think it's really promising. And I think, you know, medicine as a field tends to be very binary. It's good or it's bad. And right. I just think that chemicals are, you know, chemical structures, chemicals can be natural <laughs> come from the earth. They can come from animals. They can come from a, sci- a, a lab or a pharmaceutical company. They can come from all so- sorts of places. Let's, Isolate the chemicals and figure out how they work for somebody, and not be biased against them because of, you know, one is better in some camps because it came from a lab, and it's worse in others because it came from a lab. I don't think that, in the era of modern history that we're in, that's a terribly effective way to distinguish between what is a powerful treatment and what is not.
0: Well, most power, most powerful medication comes from plants anyway. Like they're, you know, they're, they're, and, and that's a big environmental issue right now is some of the greatest discover pharmaceutical discoveries come from like some wild herb discovered in the Amazon that's new and it can actually cure something. And that ends up leading to a pharmaceutical breakthrough. So like, that's actually a climate change challenge as well. But like, if you say pharmaceuticals are all evil, it's like, Oh, a lot of pharmaceuticals. Look, we're over, we're over medicated. Everyone agrees, but there's a lot of them derived from plants.
1: Metformin, aspirin, these very common drugs that are practically in the water. Although aspirin just gotten some evidence that it's, you know, they're no longer recommending it standardly anymore. The risk of bleeding being higher for a lot of people than the impact on heart disease. And, you know, but these things come from plants, as you say, right? And so whether it's psilocybin coming from a mushroom or whether it's, you know, aspirin coming from a leaf, we have to understand and appreciate that natural is powerful and take our supplementation seriously and take our medication seriously as
0: well. So in, in closing, I know there's no magic bullet as you stated, but is there one thing that pretty much everyone could benefit from incorporating into their life?
1: Yep. One thing, closest thing to a magic bullet that I know for mental health is meditation. And whether it's a breathing exercise, I have a great article, people in Mind buddy green and or a visualization based meditation or you just count in for four and out for six for a couple minutes or your meditation is cooking and keeping your mind focused on what you're doing as opposed to bouncing into the past, you know, or future tripping or whatever you're doing. I think that the research is there. I don't think the research is there. It is there. And we write about the research behind meditation in the book and from a practice that is powerfully transformative without a doubt for myself for my patients that's safe that's free that's available ubiquitously that is part of the practice of the most high performing people on the planet there's nothing i think more important that you can do and i have not seen anyone who meditates even for a few minutes every day 20 would be great but if all you can do to start is two start there i don't i haven't seen a single person not benefit from it now i will say you have to find the kind that's right for you And just like there's a zillion ways to exercise. There's actually lots of ways to meditate. I think meditation gets a kind of a weird rap because people think it's this like uniform one thing. And that's not true. There's lots of ways to meditate. Mantras, breathing exercises, visualizations, body scans, all the things, right? There's so many, but I write about some of my favorite apps on meditation in the book, I share some of my favorite books on meditation, some of my favorite teachers. And I just think it's one of the most important things you can do for mental health, especially in modern life. I
0: agree. Robin, thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me.